Well, this morning, if you have a Bible with you, turn with me to Acts chapter 17. The book of Acts chapter 17. Last week, we were in Acts 16, and we gleaned from the Apostle Paul's example that when possible, we should reason from the Scriptures with non-Christians. The Scriptures are our authority. We have no original thoughts of our own to offer to the world, at least not eternal ones, not of ultimate significance. And so where we can encounter some people who have some familiarity with the Bible or some interest in the Bible or some respect for the Bible, we should use the Bible as we engage them for Christ. We want them to see it for themselves right from the beginning, in discovery of Christ and, of course, later on in discipleship with Christ. But this week, we need to consider things from a different angle. What about with non-Christians who have no knowledge of the Scriptures, no interest in the Scriptures, no sliver of respect, no bit of curiosity, No interest to sit down with us and open the Bible together. What then? Must we always start with Scripture when talking about Jesus? It's an important question because it's increasingly the case in our postmodern, post-Christian culture, even here in the States, that there is very little interest in, very little respect for, Sometimes no curiosity about the Bible. It's not just that people today have less knowledge of the Bible than they used to, or are more suspicious of the Bible than they used to be, though those are true. It's that there is a growing gap of worldviews held by those who are Christians and those who are not. There's a growing gap of presuppositions between Christians and non-Christians. Now we know that we can't turn to what could be called unbiblical to offer hope, not eternally, not ultimately so. We better not turn to a different source than the scriptures for ultimate knowledge, like a motivational speaker or psychologist or the Dalai Lama. But I wonder, is there a way for the Bible to remain in the driver's seat for Christians in their witness to the world while they speak in the language of the world? Is there a way to start with culture in the conversation and let the Bible speak to the culture? Is there a way to speak of these things that is both ironic? and unwavering is there a way these days in our culture to represent God to the world that is intelligible to them and unswerving before God I confess that I find these questions like trying to walk the top edge of a picket fence and that's dangerous isn't it And yet we can't avoid these questions if we're going to represent Jesus well in the culture we find ourselves today. We know, I think as a church, that we can't be careless with the word. I wonder if we know we shouldn't be careless with the world. If we have a tin ear to the culture around us, we will needlessly offend not appropriately, needlessly offend, and we will miss some opportunities for getting to Christ. And if we have an attitude that simply goes along to get along, if we prize respectability above all else, then we will gut Christianity of the very thing that saves people from sin in darkness. The stakes are high. And so let's learn from the Apostle Paul in the second half of Acts 17, starting in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. 
Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from any one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Well, there are three parts of this passage. There's a setting, there's a speech occupying the majority of it, and then there is the outcome. We get lessons about encountering the city, explaining the big picture, and expecting varied responses. So first, encountering the city. That's what Paul does, verses 16 to 21. It begins by saying that Paul was waiting for them. For who? Well, Silas and Timothy. We saw that last week at the end of chapter 16. Paul had to flee Berea due to opposition. And some Berean brothers escorted Paul all the way down to Athens by boat. Saul and Timothy waited in Berea for a time, but were to come to Paul as soon as they possibly could. So Paul finds himself on hold, you could say, although he never is, in Athens. Athens, that great city, as it was called, the great city. Intellectually in its day, it was the Oxford and Cambridge uh, even more than that, imagine an Oxford, Cambridge, Harvard, MIT in one place. That was Athens. A few hundred years before Paul got to Athens, it was home to Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. This is the city that gave birth to democracy. This is where, this is where Plato wrote his famous Republic. It was the cultural center of the whole Roman world. Yes, it had a, a grander day before this, back a couple, 300 years before, but, but still, it was still a prominent, glorious city, renowned for its art and its architecture. Many ancient accounts describe people's personal experience of traveling towards Athens and beginning to take in its beauty and grandeur for the first time. It was breathtaking. 
But Paul found it breathtaking not for its rich history or grand architecture or unparalleled learning, but because it was a city full of idols. It was swamped with idols, literally is what it says. It was buried in idols. Archaeologists have estimated that there were 33,000 shrines or icons or altars or statues of deities or temples to be found in Athens, representing thousands of deities. The Greeks had a god for everything, for every task or skill or occasion or environment. There was a god for it, and you needed to pay homage to that god or else that God might be mad and things might not go well for you. And so they would build a temple. They would make a statue. They would make sacrifices to those gods. And it took Paul's breath away. His spirit was provoked within him when he saw these idols. I suspect the strong emotional reaction was owing to the jealousy of God in Paul's heart, but also compassion for these Athenians in their empty idolatry. Paul had been taught from birth, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, and you shall have no other gods before him, and you shall make no graven images. Paul, no doubt, grew up hearing about Psalm 115, which laments and mocks the pagan idols. He knew about that long stretch in Isaiah, chapters 40 to 48, which contrasts the true God with all these empty, fake, and useless gods of the nations. God hates idols. That's clear in Scripture. God is provoked by idolatry, and so Paul was too. That's what he saw when he was strolling around Athens one day. What would you have seen? What, what would make you remark to a friend? What would you feel? Would you see marble columns in a grand pantheon? Or would you see idols? Do we see idols in our own city? Oh, idols are not just graven images. They're anything that the heart treasures more than God. They can be joys or allegiances or comforts or securities that take the place of God. In 21st century America, our idols typically are riches and entertainment, safety, ease, humor, recreation, sex, health and fitness, success and achievements, and popularity. Even good things can be idols if they're given godlike priority and prominence. Do we see the idols in our culture today, or are we still just awing at the columns? Well, Paul was moved. He was shaken up. And he wasn't content to just feel something. He said something. Verse 17, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. The marketplace in Athens wasn't only the place that you purchased goods, it was that, but it was also the cultural center of the city. It's where you went for news. It's where you went to gossip. It's where you went to talk to others and relate to others. It's where you went to experience art and or do art. We really have nothing like it in our culture today. Maybe if you combined a pub, a newspaper, Facebook, a rec center, Starbucks, the grocery store, the park, and a student lounge all in one, you'd begin to understand what the marketplace was in Athens. And Paul was there for the gospel daily, giving the gospel, Jesus and the resurrection, to whomever would hear it. I don't think he was street peach preaching, per se. I think he was hobnobbing with the gospel. 
I think he was rubbing elbows with the gospel. I think he was gossiping the gospel. Specifically in our text, it says he was reasoning, which means, it can mean anyway, dialoguing. Later, they'll say, we want to converse with you about this. So they converse with him. There's conversation. Those who want to converse with him, notice verse 18, are some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers who have heard Paul speak a little bit here or there about this Jesus, this newfangled thing. You have to know some background here about Epicureans and Stoics because it informs how Paul addresses them in just a bit in his speech. Epicureans believed in the material, in what you can touch. They believed that the gods, if they're there, they're indifferent to the world. They are uninvolved in the material world. They don't need your worship and they're not interested in what happens. And when we die, well, our material stuff just goes material someplace else. And so you better enjoy life while you can. The Stoics had a philosophy that was almost the mirror image, the opposite. They believed in one God who is everywhere and in everything. What would later be called pantheism. They were fatalists. They believed in duty, in ignoring pain, and in self-sufficiency. And so what Paul is teaching not only contrasts with what they believe, but also with what they have heard from other philosophers. It sounds like a, a foreign message. It's new teaching, verse 19. These are strange things, verse 20. They viewed Paul as a babbler, it says. Literally, a seed picker. Like a pigeon, indiscriminately picking up whatever is on the ground in front of it. Well, that's what seed pickers did in these days. They were third-rate teachers and amateur philosophers with, with second-hand ideas picked up here and there and everywhere and jumbled together into one incoherent mess. That's what they think of Paul's message. And yet, they don't dismiss it altogether. Enough of these philosophers were curious and or concerned that they required of Paul an explanation. And so, they head to the Areopagus for this explanation. The Areopagus was a place, but it was also a council. A council of gatekeepers who would decide which teachings or ideas would be allowed to be in play in their city. Socrates, 450 years before this, stood before this very Areopagus. Not only was his new teaching found to be unacceptable, but he was also put to death for his new beliefs. So what's going to come next for Paul in this speech in the Areopagus is no small thing. This is not recreational, philosophical banter. It's not that Paul was given an invitation to be a guest lecturer at Athens University. It's not quite as serious as a court case with formal charges, but it is a hearing before an official committee of academic elites who can put a gag order on Paul at the very least. So what will Paul say in this context? Well, secondly, he's explaining the big picture. He explains the big picture in his speech, verses 22 to 31. In this speech, he doesn't quote any scripture, although all of his ideas, of course, are drawn from scripture. Paul's speech doesn't start with Jesus. He'll get to Jesus, but he doesn't start with Jesus. He zooms way out. He's articulating the big picture of God and his plan and then the gospel. Now, you've got to remember that this is a very different approach than that which we've seen from Paul when he is witnessing to Jews in a synagogue. Acts 13 gives us an example of that. What was his message in a synagogue? What did he do there with people who have the Hebrew scriptures and respect them but don't yet know about Christ? 
Well, he quotes Old Testament scriptures and makes a beeline to Christ. But not so with Greek philosophers. Paul knows that that won't work. He knows his audience. He's not going to water down what needs to be said. He won't avoid what is offensive. He won't adjust his methodology simply to avoid trouble. But he does adjust his methodology in order to communicate better with a different kind of audience. If you picture a progression of ideas like an alphabet strung across the front of a first grade classroom with Jewish synagogue goers, Paul can start with the letter M. He can start talking there. And then he can move to N-O-P-Q-R-S. But with Greek philosophers in Athens, he, he can't even just go back to the letter A. He's got to talk about what a classroom is, what an alphabet is. Before we even examine what Paul said, let's realize how relevant this is then for us today. Our culture is much closer to Athens than it is to Jerusalem. It's becoming more Athens-like all the time, less Jerusalem-like all the time. That change doesn't affect our message. The message stays the same. But it should affect our methods. Back in the 1950s, Billy Graham was used mightily of the Lord to preach all over a country where many basics of Christianity were agreed upon and assumed. And so Billy Graham didn't focus on the historicity of a guy named Jesus. He didn't focus on the legitimacy of the resurrection of Christ and try to prove it to them. What he focused on in his preaching was this question, is Jesus personal to you? Is he your personal Lord and Savior? He could begin there, not is Jesus real, not did he die, not even was he raised, but have you ever received him as your personal Lord and Savior? If today we start asking people, do you want to receive Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? Well, in our city, they might confuse Jesus with a guy named Jesus, for one. They might say, Jesus who? They, they might say, you mean Jesus 2,000 years ago? Why would I want a personal relationship with an old guy, a, a figure? How do you even do that? What does that mean? What do you mean? He's Lord and Savior. Lord of what? Savior from what? we got to zoom out. We're not beginning with the letter M most of the time when we talk to people. we got to talk about what a classroom is and what an alphabet is. So let's see how Paul does it. There are three parts to his speech. Like any good speech, there's an intro, a body, and a conclusion. The intro is about knowing the unknown God, verse 22 and 23. Paul addresses them in verse 22. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Now this was true. They had 33,000 idols to prove it. This wasn't true religion like the letter from James talks about. Indeed, it was false religion. But they didn't know it was false. And so Paul is speaking to them not immediately with a critique, but almost what could be perceived by them as a compliment, even though he knows the truth of the matter, and hopefully soon they will as well, that their religiosity isn't true religion. And then in verse 23, he notes the content of their religion, many objects of worship. And Paul also saw among those objects of worship an altar dedicated to the unknown God. Remember, they had a God for every task and event and environment. 33,000 weren't enough. They also had monuments to unknown gods. Gods they may not have come to understand yet. Gods that might be out there. You don't want to have a God out there and you haven't yet paid homage to it. And so they set up these 
altars to the unknown God, hoping one day the details might get filled in about what this God's name is and what this God does. So get this, the Athenians knew and felt their limitations of knowledge. They had a sneaking suspicion that their idols by the thousands weren't enough. That maybe there's another one out there. And this is Paul's inroad. He's actually starting with their self-confessed doubts. It's a good place to start. We might look to do the same with others, even though they don't have probably an altar to the unknown God in their living room. Or where today we encounter people who aren't so humble as these Athenians and won't admit such limitations of knowledge, we might realize that that's a good place to go. That's a great place to begin to at least establish that we don't know everything and there are things that they might not yet know. So Paul says to him, what you worship as unknown This I proclaim to you. It's a bit of tongue-in-cheek. The Athenians actually hadn't been worshiping the true God. They've been worshiping. You can imagine Paul might have, if he were in our culture, he might have had air quotes in his head when he said, you've been worshiping this unknown God that I'm about to proclaim to you. What he's simply doing is acknowledging what they said they didn't know, and he's going to tell them what they can know. And verse 24 moves to the body of the speech where Paul unpacks really two things, true God and true humanity. And he starts with God as creator. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, and already before the sentence can finish, we're already into the implications of a God who is the creator. He is the God if he is the creator of everything and all that's in it. This God then must be distinct from from his creation. He must have existed before his creation if he's the creator. He is not his creation like pantheism says. So there aren't compartmentalized gods for many things. There's one God for it all. He's the creator, and he's Lord of heaven and earth. If he's God at the beginning, he's God through it all. He's sovereign, not absent, not the God of deism, who wound the clock of this world and then put the clock on the shelf. No, he is ongoingly, intimately, and completely in charge of heaven and earth. That means all. And that kind of God is not limited by space. If he's Lord of heaven and earth, then he is in heaven and earth and every nook and cranny in them. And so he does not live in temples made by man. He doesn't have a home. Yes, in the Old Testament, God did, in a sense, dwell in a temple, a building. But even at the dedication of that temple, Solomon recognized heaven and earth can't contain you, how much less this temple. There was a sense in which God dwelt in a temple, but not like pagans thought of their gods dwelling in a temple like it was their only house. No, he doesn't live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. If he's the sovereign creator and Lord, he doesn't need us. He doesn't need us to make him a house. He doesn't need us to bring him a meal. He doesn't even need us to be his friend. He doesn't need us for anything. Anything. You see it? Verse 25, as though he needed anything, as though he needed you, as though he needed me. As though God created us because he was lonely. Because there was something missing in the triune God for billions of years before he decided to to create us. Oh no. God wasn't bored in eternity's past and decided to make some little people to play with. God created 
out of the overflow of his fullness, not because there was some void he was looking to fill. And that same idea is relevant not just to creation, but providence to to the rest of time from that point on. You see, so he gives to all mankind life in breath and everything. We, We don't give to him, he gives to us. He doesn't need, but we do need. And he supplies those needs. Every beating heart, every breath, every bite of food, every bit of unnoticed protection, it's from him. So not only is he in control everywhere, but he's good and he's kind. He's gracious. And all this started when he made one man, verse 26. He made from one man every nation of mankind. From that one man, Adam, comes every person and every nation. And God has determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Meaning that God is sovereign over epics of history and lengths of lives in places where we dwell, in territories where nations stand. It's not always pretty or easy. But history is one big quilt. And God is the quilter. It's his plan. It's his design. And again, this is all in his kindness, where people live, in certain events of people and places. Verse 27, that's that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Notice that that implies that there's a need to seek him. That implies that humanity is apart from him. It is lost. It needs him. We've lost him. We need to find him. We're lost and we need to be sought by him. There's a problem between God and man. It's not where Paul started, but you got to get there. you got to talk about the problem one way or another. There's a problem. we got to seek him. And Paul words that in both hopeful and less than hopeful ways. Perhaps, maybe, they might grope around like a blind man and feel their way toward him. That doesn't sound very optimistic. It's because Paul knows that man hasn't done a very good job of that thus far. The Athenians are proof. They didn't know God, but they sought something. The best they could come up with was an altar to an unknown God. They're groping around like a blind man trying to find what they don't know. It's a hopeless game of Marco Polo in the dark. And yet it's not hopeless. Verse 27, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Isn't that great? He's near. Oh, it could be so close. It was hopeless before. You're groping around, trying to figure out what's true, what's not, what's upside down, what's right side up. And, but, but he's actually not far. He's not a distant God. He's a close God. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, Psalm 145 says. So notice Paul's confronting and correcting, but he's also holding out hope. He continues to also make touch points of commonality. He quotes from Greek poets. The first quote is from a guy named Epimenides in the 6th century BC, who said, in him we live and move and have our being. Now, Epimenides meant that in some sort of weird mystical way, like God is in all of us. But as a raw statement by itself, Paul can say, yeah, that's true. Epimenides spoke better than he knew. In him we live and move and have our being. That's one way to describe much of what we see in the Old Testament. So this is like a preacher who quotes 
classic rock songs every now and then, out of context, for his own preaching purposes. As I sometimes do. When I say in a sermon, like that great rock band journey taught us to, st- taught us to sing, don't stop believing. When I say that, I don't mean exactly what Journey meant when they penned those words because that's a love song. It's not about God. It's not about perseverance of the saints. It's not ongoing belief. That's what I mean, but I'm just stealing it. I'm just stealing a line because the rest of my sermon has made clear Journey is not on par with the Bible. We're using the Bible here. And I'm not saying everything of what Journey said to be true is true, but I'm saying that this one line fits a lot of the Bible. I'm taking advantage of the fact that sometimes the words of the prophet are written on the subway walls. (laughs) Hashtag Simon and Garfield. Paul quotes not one but a second Greek poet, Eretus who said, for we are indeed his offspring. Now, Eretus wrote this about Zeus. And surely Paul isn't saying we are all Zeus's offspring. But everything in the speech before this has made that clear. Paul's not talking about Zeus, who's not the God. He's just one of and the best of the gods. But as a raw statement by itself, it's true. We are indeed his offspring. And if we're his offspring, made in his image, if we're his children in a creational sense, then we can know him. We can get him right. We can say, no, that is not God. So verse 29, Paul says, being his offspring, we ought not to think that God is like gold or silver or like an image formed by man's hands. God isn't an idol. We know that. We know that because he made us. And then Paul comes to his conclusion in verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. That is to say that in ages past, by and large, God had left the nations to their ignorance. That doesn't mean that they weren't being sinful. It doesn't mean that they weren't culpable for their ignorance. It doesn't mean they weren't blamable for their sin. But it's just true. God limited his spiritual intervention in their idolatry. Occasionally he inserted it with one nation. He really inserted it, but by and large, the times of ignorance, God was simply overlooking their ignorance. But now, all that's changed with the coming of Jesus. The days of ignorance are gone. That's what Paul's speech is for, for them to know what they hadn't previously known. That's why Paul is out traveling around on mission. There are places where Christ is not known and has to be known. The days of ignorance are done. Even if you'd like to stay in doubt because it's more comfortable. No. You've heard about Jesus now. Those days are done. The days of saying, eh, I don't know. Those of you who might be humbly, as you might think, an agnostic. Because, eh, I don't know. You just don't know. We don't know. There's a lot we don't know. That sounds humble. But what Paul would say to you is, uh-uh, those days are done. Times of ignorance are no longer here because you know. The question is, what are you going to do with it? Will you respond to Jesus? Will you respond to his coming and what it means? Will you repent, as he says here? You should repent because, verse 31, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man, Jesus, whom he appointed. And he's given us assurance of this by raising him from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus proves that Jesus is this world's Lord and judge, and that judgment is coming. That day is unknown to us as to when, but it is not unknown to God. It is fixed. 
And on that day, Christ will judge the world in righteousness. That day will be bad news for many, but not bad news for all. There's hope here, isn't there? We can begin to see God aright. We can begin to see ourselves aright. We can begin to see that things haven't been right, that that's what's wrong with this world. Ever since Adam and Eve, all of us have been making up gods left and right. Sometimes that God is ourselves. Sometimes that God is an inanimate object. Sometimes that God is a life goal. But we just keep replacing the true God with any God we can find and any God we can make up. And when that one doesn't work out, well, we'll get a new one. When that one wears out, well, let's get a new one. Now, you can repent today of your empty, silly, man-made religiosity. That's why Jesus came. He didn't come just to be resurrected. He died before he was resurrected. They kind of go together, don't they? And he didn't die aimlessly or accidentally, but, but purposefully and sacrificially. Jesus died for those very sins we're talking about, those idols of the heart. He died as a payment for our guilt. The just one died for the unjust ones to bring them to God, 1 Peter 3.18 tells us. Now, I don't know if you noticed, but I... I'm inserting some details here that are not in our passage. Did you notice that? I'm talking right now about the cross and what it does. Some scholars have been a little critical of Paul's speech in Acts 17, in part because they point out that there's no mention of the cross here. Verse 31 mentions the resurrection, but no cross. That's true. So some have wondered if this speech should go in Paul's low light reel. That this is a moment of weakness and this represents timidity. Well, I don't think so. In fact, let me point out a couple of reasons quickly if I can, just because I keep hearing that. And I'm not sure why people keep thinking that Paul had a momentary lapse of weakness here, hiding the cross or being chicken. I think, number one, that misses Luke's whole point in this section of Acts. He covers five Macedonian cities in chapters 16 to 19, and they're all victories. If one of them is a lesson, a negative lesson, well, I think Luke would have done better at telling us this wasn't good. This wasn't Paul's uh, finest hour. I also suspect that Paul did talk about the cross in this Areopagus speech. Luke has been abbreviating speeches from the very beginning. One ancient source attests that typical Areopagus speeches lasted two to three hours, even longer than this sermon, I know. So what we have in the Bible are summaries, not transcripts. And Luke doesn't need to keep rehearsing and rehashing what he's already established. The gospel is described in various ways throughout the book of Acts. Almost never the same. Most often it just says they preach the gospel here. And it doesn't tell us what that gospel is. Or they preach the word there. And it doesn't say what the word is. Sometimes forgiveness of sins is mentioned. But mostly it's not even though we know that's the whole point of the gospel. Sometimes in Acts, Jesus' death is explained to us what it's for, what it does. Substitution is essentially addressed. Or Jesus' death and resurrection are stated together as sort of essential components of the gospel. And sometimes it just says resurrection, which I think is shorthand for the whole thing. It's in chapter 4, verse 2. They were teaching and preaching about the resurrection. I don't think that means just the resurrection without the cross. Chapter 4, verse 33, they were giving testimony to the resurrection of Jesus. No doubt that whole weekend of Friday and Sunday. And in our own passage, chapter 17, verse 18, 
Paul was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. What, just the resurrection? He's alive. Who's alive? This guy you don't know about. Why does that matter? I don't know. I'm not even going to tell you why. I'm just going to keep preaching the resurrection. That doesn't sound like Paul to me. I think he talked about the gospel. Resurrection implies death, doesn't it? And death implies, for those who can read these pages with eyes to see, death implies payment, a ransom. So if you've never heard it spelled out for you, even though it's not spelled out here in our Bibles, let me spell it out for you. We have gone astray from God and we have made many gods of our own making to replace God But God in his mercy sent his son, who is God himself, to become a man, to live righteously and to die for guilt. To make a payment for sins, a ransom, as he said in Mark 10. And Jesus will give the gift of that payment to anyone who simply believes that what he says is true, that who he is and what he said he is is true. And asks to receive his mercy and the forgiveness of sins. That can happen today. I pray it would happen today. You must respond. You already have. You realize that? You have responded. Indifference is a response. So thirdly, Christians, we should be expecting different responses. We should be encountering the city, explaining the big picture... And expecting different responses. There are three different responses in verse 32 and 34. Some mocked. They mocked. This is all ridiculous. Specifically the resurrection. But any one of these things could have been the reason for their mockery and rejection. Christian, we can expect opposition. Let's remember that again. We've seen it almost every single week in our study of the book of Acts. We can expect ridicule. But we can also expect that some will say from time to time, we will hear you again about this. Isn't that great? They're not there yet. They have more questions. They're willing to sit down again. They're willing to listen. Some will genuinely want to hear some more. And praise God for when that door isn't closed yet. Let's, as Christians who experience this with others let's just keep meeting let's just keep answering questions when they ask questions we don't know how to answer well let's just go find the answer someplace else and we'll go back and give it to them let's give them a good book let's keep meeting let's meet next week and you keep going and yet don't be surprised that some will be willing to meet almost forever because they're not really interested that could be the case Some will say, "Uh, yeah, let's talk about that next Tuesday. Because they're like Athenians who like to spend their time discussing something new. Hmm. May God give us wisdom. And a third response, verse 34, some men joined him and believed. They got saved. They became Christians. One of them was an Areopagite. One of the gatekeepers of the teaching of Athens. One of these these people in charge of the Areopagus became a Christian that day. One of these erudite scholars, these philosophers, this elite of the intellectual community, one of them got saved. And so did a, a woman named Damaris and others with them. Every one of us in this room is in one of these three categories. Every one of us has responded to Jesus in one of these three ways. You might roll your eyes. You might say, let's keep talking. I'm not there yet, but I'm, I'm open. I'm interested. Or you've believed. There are only two kinds of people, those who've believed and those haven't. But there is this middle category, in a sense, of those who are not mocking, not rejecting, and willing to keep talking. Let me close by asking us to consider three questions. Number one, can this gospel work in this city? In our city? Can 
can this gospel of Jesus speak to this city? Can it have its way in this city? Will it work with these people? The answer is yes. And Athens gives us hope. You didn't see Athens coming, did you? It's a different kind of city compared to what came before. These are different kind of people. These are new hurdles, new challenges, a new way, in a sense, to package the gospel. Can it work there? Yeah. Yeah, just ask that Areopagite guy and that woman and many others. Second question So then, will you engage the city? Will you engage it? Will you be troubled by its idols? Will you be thoughtful about how to best engage it? Will you look for what you can find in your life to be the closest thing to a marketplace where you can get to Jesus, where you can rub elbows for the gospel? Oh, don't just keep rubbing elbows in view of possibly one day, possibly perhaps getting to the gospel, if someone asks, if they notice how nice you are. It's sometimes attributed to Frank Sansis, a sissy. Preach the gospel daily, and if necessary, use words. That's stupid. There is no gospel apart from words. Live your life, yes. Live it to the glory of God before the world. But engage the city with the gospel. That's how people get saved. Related to that third question, will you be willing to explain the big picture to people who live in another world? Or another worldview at least. If we follow Paul's lead in Acts chapter 17, it's going to take more work for us. It won't be as easy as memorizing the Romans road or having a nice track in your car that you occasionally give out or by using C.S. Lewis's three L's that Jesus is either liar, lunatic, or Lord. It's going to take more work if we're going to try to do something of what the Apostle Paul does here and engage people where they are, not where we are. I know I said last week, Hey, be a one-trick pony. Just keep it simple. Just use C.S. Lewis. Just use the Romans Road. That was last week. (laughs) We're in a different passage this week. That, That passage teaches one thing. This passage, in a sense, would have different application for us, I think. With God's help, we will endure rejection. We will keep pressing on with those who still have questions and by God's grace some will come to believe let's pray oh Lord we ask that that would be the case this morning at Jesus name his cross and resurrection would not only be our hope and our message but it would be for some here this morning an awakening a realization. We pray they would turn from whatever idols are in their life and turn to you, the living God. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your mercy, for the forgiveness of sins, for the forgiveness of heinous sins like cutting you out of our worship and replacing you with cheesy, pathetic, empty things. Forgive us. Keep us from idols. We thank you for your mercy. Amen.